Good evening. You know, I missed you guys. It's good to see your faces again. I feel like Dorothy. There's no place like home. There's no place like home. I missed you guys, too. Oh, good to see you. Hey, we have a special treat for you tonight. We're going to hear from a good friend of mine who's been a friend of mine for many years. He lives in Jerusalem. And we thought you should hear a first-hand account. And I'll tell you why. Tonight we're going to talk about a couple of issues. The revival of Israel and the right of Israel to exist as a nation, but especially as a nation of God. So we're going to dial up. It's actually the time zone I just came from. Oh, about 4.24 in the morning in Jerusalem. And we're going to call David Aziel, who's been a tour guide, a friend of mine for many, many years. And we're going to call him on the phone right now and talk to him. Let's do that. This is real. Somehow I think we should have done this, like, just a few minutes ago. Had it ready. This is your AT&T operator. Okay. No, we're not calling collect. There's the ring. Hello? David? Yes. This is your friend Skip. Yes, Skip. Good morning for me. Good evening for you. <laughs> well, there's a couple of thousand people that are waiting to hear from you, David. We're sure glad that you um, can talk to us. I just got back from Russia myself, so my brain is in your time zone still. But uh, we would like to hear from you, David, about what's going on from a firsthand account in Jerusalem in Israel, how it's affected the nation, how it's affected the economy? Um, well, uh, first of all, uh, right now, uh, it's a little bit more than uh, it was uh, uh, three weeks ago before we started uh, the military operation in uh, what we call uh, Samaria and uh, Judea, or the West Bank, as you know, in the United States or other parts of the world. Uh, less uh, uh, car bombs, uh, less uh, people uh, blowing up uh, themselves uh, in public areas. Uh, so life is trying to return a little bit uh, more to normal than uh, used to be three weeks ago. But uh, to be honest with you, uh, people are very much uh, concerned uh, still going to uh, public areas going to downtown like uh, here in Jerusalem uh, not too many go these days unfortunately to Ben Yehuda Street and King George Street and um, uh, the all of the places wherever we go now even coffee shops they have security people at the entrance and you have to open your uh, bags and they check your body and it is very, very sad to see that wherever you go, you have to go through these uh, security checkings when life could be so so nice. Mm. Um, tourism is completely down. We don't have any tourists in the land. Uh, individuals now and then, but uh, that's about it. Uh, on the other hand, uh, years ago, I remember, uh, we could travel all over uh, the places. Uh, the Palestinians could uh, uh, go all over uh, the land. Uh, we will find them on Fridays on places like the Sea of Galilee or uh, on the beaches of Israel. In uh, the quality of life for both uh, Israelis and Palestinians was uh, by far much, much uh, better. Uh, years ago, we thought that uh, with the Oslo agreements, uh, we reach uh, some kind of an agreement. Uh, probably the idea was great. Uh, the idea was that uh, over the years uh, we will uh, reach uh, some kind of an understanding. Uh, Israel will uh, make concessions. The Palestinians will make concessions. We will share the land. Uh, Israel is uh, 
would help uh, the Palestinians to uh, build up themselves, uh, have their own uh, education, they have their own uh, political system, uh, judicial uh, system. And so uh, it will be bo uh, for both uh, people uh, better. Unfortunately, uh, the agreements that were done with uh, Mr. Arafat and uh, his uh, aides, uh, the, the agreements were okay, but uh, these people never uh, left uh, the way of uh, terrorism, unfortunately. Uh, they never uh, came to a new reality. And uh, although uh, somehow they declared that they recognized the state of Israel, on many, many close uh, meetings, Mr. Arafat uh, uh, mentioned that uh, the final goal is to remove the state of Israel and replace it by a Palestinian state where some Jews will be welcome uh, to live. Uh, which uh, brings us to the point where basically all of this conflict in the Middle East is not uh, the refugees, is not land, is not the settlements, like uh, many people think in the world. But the bottom line of all this uh, conflict of uh, over 100 years now is whether a Jewish entity can exist in the Middle East or uh, not. Unfortunately, the Palestinians, with, uh, I would say more than the Palestinians, their leadership in uh, several of the Arab countries, have not uh, reached the point yet to come and recognize Israel as a Jewish uh, entity. And that's really the source of all of the conflict. And uh, as long as Israel would like to continue to exist as a Jewish entity and the Arabs will not recognize that, the conflict will not be over. Mm. Um, so this is more or less. I'm sorry, by the way, let me say at the beginning, uh, we have a lot of Palestinian friends, which we cannot see now. We cannot meet with them. Many of them are in very poor uh, shape, economically speaking. Um, of course, schools are not operating uh, now in the West Bank, and many other services uh, almost don't exist. Uh, it's a big chaos, and uh, I think that it's also bad for the Palestinians, and I wish uh, that uh, they could uh, get somehow some kind of leadership that will uh, give them uh, a better life and probably establish uh, some kind of relationship like we had with the Palestinians, uh, as I remember, years uh, ago. Yes. David, in 48, you were willing to partition the state and at other times to sit down and discuss a Palestinian state, and of course that was denied by Arafat and the others. What is the solution at this point, since you have groups of people coming in and willing to kill themselves and others, what do you see as a solution to dealing with a group that believes in that strategy? Uh, I believe that, uh, first of all, and probably this is the big mistake that was done from the beginning when we signed the Oslo Agreements, is that there was no control over the media that we uh, have given to the Palestinians. You see, before the Oslo agreements, uh, were no the Palestinian TV, were no Palestinian uh, radio stations. Uh, all of the education years ago was under the control of the Jordanians or the Egyptians in the Gaza Strip, Jordanians in the West Bank. Uh, since 1967, it was under the control of uh, the military government. And therefore, all of the textbooks, for instance, were all clean of uh, propaganda against Israel or anti-Semitism. Since the Oslo agreements were uh, signed way back in 1992 and then in 1994, uh, the second one, um, the Palestinian Authority, which uh, uh, came from uh, Tunisia, uh, we're giving the freedom uh, to run uh, these areas of uh, the Gaza Strip and, and the West Bank where Palestinian people are living. Uh, they were given uh, full freedom about uh, education. And therefore, they started to educate the children that uh, uh, the Israelis are, are bad. And then uh, uh, today, of course, they are educating the children that... Um, uh, to blow up themselves. It's a holy 
um, act and that God will uh, receive them in heaven and, and, and they will have a wonderful life over there. And uh, this is what they see on TV all the time. And this is what is uh, being mentioned on the radio all the time. And so this is really a, a tragedy. I was watching about uh, four or five days ago how in a kindergarten a child about four years old stood up in his uh, birthday and said that uh, his goal and his uh, hope and his dream is one day to grow up and to blow up himself and to become a shaheed, which means a martyr. Mm -hmm. And then when he finished uh, uh, reciting his uh, little uh, hope and uh, desire, uh, the teacher stood up and clapped hands and said, bravo, bravo, wonderful. Uh, you see, children, you have to follow this example. I think that this is uh, sick. It's uh, satanic. And unless we change that and, and we give these children a hope and, and we teach them differently like you do in the States, like it's done in many, many other countries in the world, like we do with our children, that we teach them that life is something very sacred and very holy, uh, the situation will not change. And that's my frustration and the frustration of many Israelis mm -hmm. who today are willing to make sacrifices. But uh, uh, what on the other side? I mean, we have not only to replace the leadership that brought all of this uh, to the Palestinians, but now we have to, to wait probably for another generation that will be educated in a different way. Yes. Well, David, we're going to be continuing to pray for you, the situation in Israel, and we look forward to the day when we can bring another group and be with you on another tour in Israel. God bless you. Thank you. Thank you, and God bless you. And please uh, don't forget to pray also for the Palestinians, and especially for the Palestinian children. Uh, they also deserve a better future. Yes. They also deserve to enjoy life like uh, all the other children in the rest of the world. So please pray, f uh, pray for the Israelis, but at the same token, pray for the Palestinians that God may open their eyes and uh, they may give them, uh, receive a, a better future than they are looking for right now. Amen. Thank you, David. God bless you. God bless you, and thank you very much. Let's all stand for a minute. Let's sing one last song together. Well, we actually uh, want to begin with an Internet question that uh, sort of goes in line with um, our study tonight. We thought we'd have time for more, but uh, we have time for one. And I can't pronounce this guy's name, but um, it's, I'm not going to actually insult him by trying, especially the last name, but um, I think it's, it's N-A-G-Y is his first name, Nagi or Nagi or Nagi or something to that effect. But the question is, God in the Old Testament was very strict with his people. We studied that in 1 Samuel, he punished his people because they dared to look inside the ark. Yet, God was so easygoing in the New Testament with his people. He let them insult Jesus, his only son. How and why did God change? My understanding is that God is the same, never changing, and there is this gentleman's name who wrote this. Well, he mentions that something that is commonly brought up, and that is a discrepancy between the God of the Old Testament and the God of the New Testament, that the God of the Old Testament is harsh, the God of the New Testament is, as he said, easygoing. Uh, uh, God is the same. His nature is constant. He doesn't change. He doesn't have a bad mood in the Old Testament and a very good mood in the New Testament. In fact, what he would call easygoing, I would ask about Ananias and Sapphira in the book of Acts chapter 5. It's the church age. They get struck dead because they lied to the Holy Spirit and misrepresented themselves before the early church. The truth of the matter is, is that different periods of history, God reacts. Holy God reacts to an unholy act. And it seems that in certain periods of history, sometimes at the beginnings of those periods of history or dispensations, we find a strong reaction of holy God to unholy man. For instance, we find that in the Old Testament, in the tabernacle with Nadab and Abihu, they offered strange fire before the Lord, they were killed. As soon as they entered the new land with Joshua, a brand new period of history unfolding for them, we have the sin of Achan, 
And God brings a harsh judgment upon that sin. And then when they set up the ark in Jerusalem, later on we'll get to this, when Uzzah is bringing the ark and he touches it to steady it, he is struck dead. And then, of course, Ananias and Sapphira, which we just mentioned, they lied to the Holy Spirit in Acts chapter 5. That's New Testament. And then also, further on in 1 Corinthians, Paul talks about delivering certain ones to Satan for the destruction of the flesh that the Spirit might be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. So all of these show the same God at different periods of history, both Old and New Testament. And something else, we have a very narrow perspective of what is the worst fate a person can receive, as if death is the worst thing that could ever happen. When Ananias and Sapphira were struck dead, or Yuza was struck dead, it doesn't say they were consigned to hell. It just says they died. Death isn't the worst thing that can happen to a person. An eternity without God, an eternity apart from hope, that's the worst thing that can happen to a person. So I think we need to readjust our thinking into what is the worst possible fate, as some would say. But anyway, I hope that answers your question, and uh, I hope that, though we can only touch on it, that gives you a little bit of of a fuller-orbed view of the God of the Old and the New Testament. Now, turn in your Bibles to 1 Samuel chapter 7. Let's get started tonight. I mentioned that I've been in uh, Kiev in the Ukraine doing a conference for the Billy Graham organization, and I've been teaching 1,800 evangelists and pastors, Ukrainian pastors, Ukrainian evangelists. And uh, on the last day of our conference, they asked if I would pray for their country and pray for revival. They said, we want that you should be praying for revival for our country. So I said, I'd love to. So we prayed that God would revive what he has begun in that country. Now, the word revival brings with it some interesting connotations. Some people hear the word revival and it brings a wonderful sense, if you've done any reading at all, on past revivals. Your mind may go to the revivals of, say, Methodism, John Wesley, George Whitfield, and the great events that that revival, that work, inspired. Or you might go to the reforms of John Knox in Scotland, who with great fervor said to God, Give me Scotland or else I die. And what great tragedy as well as blessing that brought for the nation and revival. Or you might go to the 1800s when Charles Finney preached in Rochester, New York, and some 30,000 people in and around Rochester were converted. It was a great time of revival. Or you might think of Dwight Moody and Ira Sankey or Billy Sunday or even Billy Graham who has preached in our generation to more than any other evangelists. He's preached to more people in the world than anyone else who has ever lived. So you hear revival, and you may think of that, or else you may hear the word revival, and it might bring some not good connotations to your mind. You might think of the revivalists or the fake revivals of the past. You may think of movies such as Leap of Faith, starring Steve Martin, a con artist who traveled around the country and put on fake miracle shows to garnish himself with the money and the proceeds that came from it. And now in some places, revival is even scheduled. I've seen signs, revival, Sunday through Friday, beginning at 7.30, as if you can push a button and tell God exactly when to act. Well, you know, in the Bible, the word revival is only used once. The word revive is used 20 times, and it's usually in the form of a prayer like, Revive us, O God. Now, that's a good prayer, by the way, to say to the Lord. Revive us, revive me, O God. But I looked up revival in the dictionary, and it has some interesting connotations with it. Listen to the definition. Webster says that revive means to return to consciousness or life, to become active or flourishing again, to restore from a depressed and inactive 
or an unused state. So, when we say we want revival, it implies something is dead, or at least dying, and needs to be acted upon from the outside or brought to life. In science, there is a law known as entropy. And I have observed entropy not only in nature, but I've observed it socially. I've observed it at the workplace. I have observed it spiritually. Entropy says that over time, in a closed system, such as we have here in our environment, our biosphere, in a closed system over time, there is a loss of energy, there is a, a, a loss of heat energy, a decay, a deterioration that takes place, that something goes from very organized to very disorganized over a long period of time. I find it to be true spiritually as well. Unless acted upon by an outside force or outside energy, i.e. the power of God moving in our lives, there tends to be naturally a spiritual deterioration whereby people will look back and remember a time they walked closely with the Lord and they're now living in a time where they need revival. Those fires need to be stoked once again. We tend to decay. I've told you before a couple of times about a couple who retired and they bought a motor home. The feature they loved about the motor home is that it had cruise control. But the, the gal who was driving it thought cruise control meant automatic pilot. That's what she heard in her mind. The cruise control worked perfectly. Husband drove it up the California coast and after a while got tired and asked his wife to take over. Would she drive for a while? She agreed. She did fine, pushed cruise control, having a great time until after an hour or so she decided to get up from the driver's seat, go to the back and use the restroom. At least that's what she told the highway patrolman after the accident. The camper was total, demolished. They survived, they were fine in the end. But she put it on what she thought was cruise control and she walked away from it. You cannot live the Christian life on automatic pilot, on cruise control. You can't just sit there and let it automatically happen. It won't happen. In fact, if you are thinking that, yes, I gave my life to Christ some time ago, and you're on cruise control, I think it's safe to say you need revival. You need those fires of devotion stoked once again. Now, the children of Israel had settled in the land and became a little too comfortable, a little too apathetic, and so there is a cycle, and we've talked about it before. I want you to keep this in your mind as we go through this book. There is a cycle called the sin cycle that you see happening over and over and over again. And I'm telling you this because the book of Samuel opens up in the middle of this sin cycle. In fact, the second phase of it. The first part of this cycle is apostasy. That is, people in Israel were getting a little too complacent. They took God a little too much for granted. They stopped worshiping him exclusively, passionately. They fell away from an intimate walk with God. That's number one, apostasy. The second phase is called oppression. God disciplines his children by handing them over to the very enemies they feared. Oppression brings us to the third phase of the cycle. After apostasy, now in an oppression phase by the enemies, they cry out to God. They lament. They ask God to deliver them. Let's call this repentance. If it's really from the heart, repentance. They are willing to turn away from what is wrong. And the fourth phase of the cycle is restoration or deliverance. Now, Samuel opens up during the second phase of this cycle. They are being plagued by the Philistines. The ark gets captured. Two of the priests die. The high priest himself, Eli, falls over backwards hearing the capture of the ark. Israel, once protected by God, is not as protected anymore. The Philistines come in and hassle them. Now, verse 1. Then the men of Kiriath-Jerim 
came and took the ark of the Lord and brought it to the house of Abinadab on the hill and consecrated Eleazar, his son, to keep the ark of the Lord. Now tonight, in speaking about revival, I'm going to show you here in the text four components of revival. How do you know if you're being revived? How do you know if, a, if a, an era, a church, a movement is undergoing revival? And we see them here. Look at verse 2. Here's the first mark of it, the first phase of that revival. So it was that the ark remained in Kiriath-Jerim a long time. It was there 20 years, and all the house of Israel lamented after the Lord. The first component, the first mark of revival, is restlessness for God. You look back. You remember what it was like at one time. You remember what your heart was like at one time. You remember the relationship you had back then. And your heart gets restless for the Lord. Now the Septuagint translation, or the Greek translation, translated some 250 years before Christ, translates this verse saying, They looked back after the Lord. Can you just picture that? They come to a point where the ark is restored to Israel, but not in Shiloh, not in Jerusalem. It's in some weird, obscure place nobody ever heard about, unless you read this passage, for 20 years. God isn't central anymore. Worship of the ark, at the ark, worship of God in the nation with the tabernacle is no longer central. And they remembered. Their memory, their conscience is stirred. Oh, remember what it was once like. And there was a longing. That is always the beginning of revival. When there is a spiritual longing for the things of God, your soul becomes weary. And notice what it says. It says, all the house of Israel lamented. This isn't just an isolated incident in a pocket full of people, but all of Israel is feeling the ramifications, the effects of this. A mark of revival is when God's people corporately sense in their hearts a restlessness for the things of God. Not just a few, but a bunch. Leonard Ravenhill, who's written many to-the-point books, said evangelism is something that affects the other fellow. Revival affects me. Revival affects me. It affects everyone. I've discovered in our generation, we're very disillusioned. Things like September 11th, things like the Middle East crisis that never seem to end. They're always nagging problems. Uh, Our eyes have now been opened to the reality of sin and of evil and of wickedness and unpredictability of the future. A lot of people that I talk to around the world are disillusioned, uncertain. And honestly... I'm glad. Because it is such times like this that cause us to be aware we need God. We need Him. We've always needed Him, but now I realize I need the Lord. We start becoming restless. Listen to this article in Psychology Today. It's called On the Road to Happiness. Compared to 1960, the America of today has doubled its spending power. We also have twice as many cars per person We have color TVs, VCRs, microwaves, answering machines, computers, and $12 billion a year worth of brand-named athletic shoes. But what has this economic growth meant for morale? Over the same period, depression rates have soared. Teen suicide has tripled. Divorce rates have doubled. The accumulation of material goods is at an all-time high, but so is the number of people who feel an emptiness in their lives. Now, let me just say in hearing that, it shows we are ripe for revival. That's an opportunity when people realize all the stuff that I could stuff within my soul. Don't cut it. I need more. Now, maybe you personally, let's take it out of the national and take it to the personal. Maybe you personally sense a restlessness in your heart. You look back. 
you remember that at one time you walked and panted after the Lord. and You no longer do. You say, how could this be? The same way it happened to the church of Ephesus, who only 60 years after Jesus wrote, or, or after it was founded by Paul the Apostle, Jesus wrote a little postcard to them in the book of Revelation and said, well, you're doing a lot of great works, but you've left, you've forsaken your first love. What happens to a church can happen to an individual. What happens to a movement, what happens to a denomination, begins in individual hearts. And maybe you've sensed that it's happened in yours. You look back, and tonight you are lamenting after the Lord. There's that sense of restlessness for the things of God. I watch this, not only spiritually, I watch this in marriages. I have people come and they say, we are madly in love with each other. We can't stay apart a single day. And I go, yeah, right. (laughs) Well, that's good. It takes more than just that feeling. Are you committed? Oh, we're committed. We just love each other. And then I see them sometimes, not all the time, thank God, but many times, sometime later, they're singing a different tune. And I look at them and I listen to them. And I think, what happened to the girl who couldn't wait to hear that voice call her on the telephone in the afternoon? Ah, oh, it's him. <laughs> now he calls, oh, it's him. What does he want? I wish he'd leave me alone. And I look at him and I think, what happened to the guy who bought her flowers a lot? And now he says, don't worry, at her funeral, she'll get flowers. (laughs) He used to open the car door for her. Now he wants to slam the car door on her. (laughs) What happened? I'll tell you what happened. Entropy happened. Erosion happened. They are looking back to a time when they said, we can't live without each other. But they haven't sufficiently worked on the relationship and let it be energized so that it just decays and deteriorates. It happened to the church of Ephesus. It can happen to you. It can happen to us. So that's the first step, restlessness. Let's look at the next one. Then Samuel spoke to all the house of Israel, saying, If you return to the Lord with all your hearts, then put away the foreign gods and the ashtoreths from among you and prepare your hearts for the Lord and serve him only, and he will deliver you from the hand of the Philistines. The first part of that verse says Samuel spoke. There is a relationship between the first verse, or verse 2 and verse 3. They lamented, so Samuel spoke. All of them lamented, so Samuel spoke to all the house of Israel. Once you're restlessness, once you're restless for the things of God and you realize at one time you had that relationship, you no longer have it, you look back and you long for it when you're restless, you are now open for the injection of God's truth into your heart. Remember back a couple chapters that says the word of the Lord was rare in those days. There was no widespread revelation. You know why? Because they weren't interested in the word of God. They were closed. But now their world is shaken. They're oppressed by the Philistines. The ark has been captured. They once trusted in it. It's back, but not in its rightful place. They're longing for God, and now they're open to hear the word of God. That always happens, by the way. That second phase is they receive the word of God. They were restless for God. There was a reception now to the word of God. And this always happens. Once we're uncomfortable in our sin, then we stop and we go, okay, God, I'm all ears. I want to see what you have to say about it. Catastrophe unfortunately, brings a lot of people back to the Lord. Some bad thing happens in their lives. Things are going great. Oh, who needs God? September 11th happens. Churches are packed. Prayer meetings are packed. Then if we normalize after a few weeks and after a few months and call a prayer meeting together, you'll have, oh, 20 people show up, maybe even 100 show up. But that's if you really push it, put a Fancy insert in the bulletin, get people, oh, it's going to be really cool. Okay, if it's going to be cool, 
But to get people to pray and be open to God's word, oftentimes, aside from a catastrophe, you're not going to see it. That's why when the Gulf War happened years ago, when September 11th happened, the churches swelled. Oh, we were so contrite for a week. And then, okay, we got it under control. I'll see you later. These people are shaken to the core. C.S. Lewis said many things. One of his most famous sayings is that God whispers to us in our pleasures. Have you ever heard that? But he shouts to us in our pains. He said pain, suffering, is God's megaphone to rouse a deaf world. And how many times have we been roused? We've been deaf, but we've been roused. And we come and pour out our hearts to God. Oh, God, I need you. Well, you always needed him. But now you realize you need him. And God is there, praise the Lord, to listen to our prayers. Well, now that God has their attention, the Philistines have attacked several times. Now that the ark is not where it should be, people are coming to a realization that they're restless for God. Now they're all ears. They're ready to hear what Samuel has to say. And so he says it very honestly, very truthfully, doesn't pull any punches. We notice what he says. If you return to the Lord with all your hearts, then put away the foreign gods and the asterisks from among you and prepare your hearts, hearts for the Lord and serve him only, exclusively. And he will deliver you from the hand of the Philistines. You know what I love about Samuel? He was honest. He just spoke truth, the word of God, undiluted, unmixed, straight, straight up. This was a time not for entertainment, not for talking about the Tabernacle Building Fund. It was a time to preach repentance, preach the gospel. And he did. And I wish more of God's servants, God's ministers, God's evangelists would speak the truth and give people the honest truth. You know, when a person needs directions... Truth is always the best order of the day. And especially when it comes to eternal directions. Listen, how do you get to heaven? Oh, let me put on a cool show for you and tell you about the building fund. No, just tell me how to get to heaven. Tell me the truth. And I think that people want the undiluted truth, the facts, what the Word of God really has to say. And, of course, Samuel does that. I look at Samuel, and I've examined him throughout this book. I, I, I see him as a skilled physician applying the right medicine, the right cure. And I'll tell you why I say that, because I've noticed something about doctors. They're not always liked. You come to a doctor, doctor, I'm having pains. He runs some tests on you. He sits you down, and he says, you're going to die. You have cancer. It's at a stage where if I don't cut you open and remove that and radiate it and put chemicals on it, you're toast. Well, that's not a very nice thing to say. That doesn't make me feel good. In fact, doctor, my inner child is now hurting. So, wouldn't you rather that he tells you the truth and applies the critical strategy that is needed? Well, that's what Samuel, Dr. Samuel does in a spiritual sense. It's very filled with direction and honesty. Revival will happen when somebody who's restless for God is met by the truth of the word of God and responds to that. Romans 10. So then faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. One of my favorite countries to visit is Scotland. I love it. I especially love going through the city of Glasgow and seeing what once was the crest of the city. It's displayed still on a couple of places, but it's been taken down largely from a number of the public buildings. But on, on every lamppost was once the saying written for all of the city to see. It said, let Glasgow flourish by the preaching of his word and by the praising of his name. Can you imagine that? A city putting that over 
as their city banner, let Glasgow flourish by the preaching of his word and the praising of his name. Now, over time, they decided, wow, we got to change that and keep in step with the times. And so they dropped the last part. And now it says, let Glasgow flourish, period. They left off by the preaching of his word and the praising of his name. Go to Glasgow today and see if it's flourishing. It's decrepit. It's got a high suicide rate, an incredibly high alcoholism rate, drug rate. Kids are hanging out at bars all over town, aimless. Glasgow isn't flourishing because his name isn't praised and his word isn't being preached. Well, here it is once again in the nation of Israel. Now, I pray, my prayer for you, for us, is that God will revive us. And how will I know it's true? When you have an insatiable hunger for the word of God. Do you? I was at the gym today working out, and I remembered, I always remember this scripture when I'm doing this, that bodily exercise profits a little. And I was working, I just kind of stopped and looked in the mirror, and I said, that's true. It's right. I mean, I'm going to die. I'm putting all this effort into what? You know, not that I should let it go and just, you know, drift the other direction. I want to stay fit. However, Godliness, it says, is profitable for all things. I want to make sure I'm working out twice as much spiritually, at least, than I am physically. Do you work out daily? Do you love the Word of God? Do you bring your Bible to church? Do you read it? Do you pray over it? Do you apply it to your life? Restlessness for God, reception of the Word of God. And there's a third. Look at verse 4. So the children of Israel... Put away the Baals and the Ashtoreths and serve the Lord only. They renounced false gods. That's the third step, the renunciation, the putting away of false gods. Revival must mean removal. It's not just, I'm adding God to my life. I figure there's something missing and I've needed God, so I'm going to add him to all the other stuff in my life. Well, you know what? If you do that, you might find that God is competing with some of the stuff in your life. And, and you need to actually remove some of that stuff. The idols. Something that has replaced the devotion for God. It's one thing to be regretful over the past. Emotional. I regret what has happened. It's another thing to be repentant over it. To turn from it. To put those things away. One time after a successful campaign, Billy Graham was asked when many people were coming forward at a crusade, they asked him, Dr. Graham, would you consider this revival? He said, no. He said, in a revival, I would expect to see two things happen. Number one, a new sense of the holiness of God on the part of Christians. And number two, a new sense of the sinfulness of sins on the part of Christians. Sinfulness of sin, holiness of God. We find both of these happening in 1 Samuel chapter 7. They turned from two principal gods that were very prevalent back then, a male and female counterpart, Baal and Ashtoreth. Baal was like the big guy. He was like numero uno God in the pantheon of false deities. The Philistines believed that Dagon was the father. In fact, in the, in the Ross... Um, Shmarna scrolls, the um, uh, tablets, it is said that Dagon was the father of Baal, but that's just in the Philistine mentality. Baal was sort of the, the god over all the gods. He was the, the god of the rain, of the, of the clouds, of the sun, of nature, of fertility. You would pray to Baal for your crops to grow. Uh, you would pray to Baal for your cattle and sheep to multiply. And both Baal and Ashtoreth were worshipped by sensuality, by sexual relations with a priestess or a priest of that religion. And that's one of the reasons it became very popular among even the Jews in Israel is because it allowed them to engage in promiscuity and fornication in the name of a religious deity. Samuel said, you have to put away that pornography. You have to put away that sensuality. And you have to serve only the Lord. And they cut that out of their lives. This is called repentance. You know how unpopular that word has become? 
Try it sometime. Say that to an unbeliever. Repent. See what they say to you. Most of them aren't going to go, okay, when? They'll look at you like you're some alien. Repentance is mocked by unbelievers, and i got to tell you, the church treats it with embarrassment. We want to cover over the idea of repentance. You know that Jesus' first public message was repent? The kingdom of God is at hand? You know that in the book of Revelation, chapters 2 and 3, five times Jesus calls the church to repentance. You go, no, wait a minute. I'm getting this really messed up in my mind. I thought repentance was for unbelievers. You're saying that believers need to repent? Yes. If we have replaced God with an idol, we do. Remember that John wrote to Christians when he said, if we confess our sins, that would imply that we have sins to confess. If we do that, God is faithful and just, faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So they renounce false gods and also look in verse 4, they return to God. That's the fourth principle. They return to God. The children of Israel put away the Baals and the Ashtoreths and notice this, they served the Lord only. This is the other half of repentance. One is turning away from something. The other is turning to God completely. That's repentance. So revival comes when there's a restlessness for God, a receiving of the word of God, a forsaking of sin, and an obedience to the Lord. It's not just stopping the wrong stuff. It's doing the right stuff. True revival comes when we do these things. In verse 5, I want you to notice something in verse 5 and 6. Samuel said, gather the children, gather all of Israel to Mizpah, and I will pray to the Lord for you. So they gathered at Mizpah and drew water, poured it out before the Lord, and they fasted that day, and they said there, we have sinned against the Lord. And Samuel judged the children of Israel at Mizpah. They confessed their sin. They didn't say, okay, Lord, uh, if we have made a mistake, we're like, sorry. No, if they confess their sin. The word confess means to agree with. I agree with God. This is wrong. You see, repentance always includes confession. Repentance always includes confession. You must agree with what God says about your sin, that it's wrong. And realize, I have honestly hurt the Lord. They confess their sin. Now, it says they poured out water. That must have been an ancient sign of pouring out one's heart to God. Pouring out one's life in submission to God. In fact, one of the Targums of the Jews translates this by saying, um, they poured out their hearts in repentance like water. They poured out their hearts in repentance like water. Lord, we have sinned. Now, I know. We live in a day and age when you say, I have sinned, people will listen and go, that's low self-esteem. You can't say that. No, I don't call it low self-esteem. I call it humility. Humility. It's true. We've sinned. Forgive us. Also, repentance includes not only confession, but action. For they prayed and they fasted there. You know, every great work of God begins in prayer. When we first started this Bible study here in Albuquerque, New Mexico, I didn't know how to start a church. I didn't know how to run a church. I didn't know what a pastor is supposed to do. We started a Bible study, and a lot of people started coming. So they said, now what are you going to do? I said, I don't know. But let's, a few of us, who are concerned about what I'm going to do, let's get together and pray. Pray for me, pray with me. So we began praying as many as the Lord would raise up and touch their heart. Lord, what do we do next? That's how we started. How blessed I was when a man came into this auditorium one day. He was wandering around and I came in. I was walking from one place to the other and he said, can I talk to you for a minute? I said, sure. He introduced himself and he said, I just want you to know that I've been praying for Albuquerque and a great work of God to be done for 30 years. And I always thought God was going to use me to do it. And then you came to town. 
And I saw that God was going to answer my prayer through you and through others in this town that we're all doing this together. But I saw how God was working through you to answer our prayers. I was humbled. I thought back to the revivals of Finney in New York when 30,000 people came to Christ. And I remember that he said a group of people in Enfield, Massachusetts, got together and were praying for their area in New York. And, and in one night when he gave his sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, um, I'm thinking Jonathan Edwards now, no, uh, Finney said that the whole revival started by a man who prayed that God would bring revival, but he never attended any of Finney's meetings. He just was in his, in his room, in his house, praying for revival. And he traces back the revival in New York to one man praying. As does Dwight L. Moody, who went to London and saw thousands of people come to Christ during a Br British campaign. He said there was a girl who was bedridden. She found out about Moody and she said, Oh God, how wonderful it would be if Dwight L. Moody could ever come to England, ever preach in London. And she prayed that he would, and he eventually came and he traces the effects of that revival back to that bedridden girl praying for God to pour out his spirit. Could it be that God will stir some of your hearts to pray for revival? I mean, really pray for it? But spontaneously, we don't even have to have, we're calling a prayer meeting. We're going to give you a fancy bulletin brochure that says, here's a prayer meeting. You'll just... You'll just do it. You'll just get together with friends. You'll get together after a service, before a service. Some people are praying right now in a back room. They do it before and during every service. Maybe God would inspire some of our hearts to be involved in that. So these four elements, these four components of revival could actually be put into three components. Restlessness, reception, and repentance. Restlessness for God, what it once was like. Receiving the truth of the word of God, letting it impact and change us. And then repentance, a willingness for us, for us personally, to turn from what we know is displeasing to God and to serve him and obey him only. When we pray for revival, we have a tendency to look at other people. Oh, Lord, they need it bad, really bad. Revive them. Change them. Gypsy Smith, a revivalist, was asked, how do you start a revival? He said, it's simple. Go into a room, kneel on the floor, draw a chalk circle around yourself, and ask God to revive the inside of the circle. When your prayer is answered, you have a revival. It begins with us, individually. Now, when the Philistines heard the children of Israel had gathered together at Mizpah, the lords of the Philistines went up against Israel. Interesting. And when the children of Israel heard of it, they were afraid of the Philistines. So the children of Israel said to Samuel, Do not cease to cry out to the Lord our God for us, that he may save us from the hand of the Philistines. Isn't it interesting, as soon as they make a commitment to God, the enemy surrounds them? Does that shock you? Are you thinking, well, certainly when we make a commitment of our souls, of our hearts to God, he's going to protect us. Oh, listen. You've just put up your, you put on the boxing gloves and said, come on, devil. That's when the battle begins. When you make that overture, that commitment to God, God will see it through. God will be with you, but you have a battle ahead. As soon as the Spirit of God hovered over Jesus at his baptism and the Father said, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased, and it was a dramatic introduction of the Messiah to Israel. He was tempted out in the wilderness. He was barraged by Satan, and it says, and the devil left him until he found an opportune time. He's looking for those opportune times. It happened that way with the disciples. They were up on the Mount of Transfiguration. Jesus was transfigured before them. They saw Moses and Elijah appear, and I'm sure they thought, this is cool. We just saw something that nobody else has seen. The other disciples didn't see it. 
This is amazing. They came down from that mountain on a spiritual high. You know what happened as soon as they came down? They met a man who had a demon-possessed boy and challenged the disciples. Your disciples couldn't cast them out. So this spiritual high was met, was met with an attack and a challenge by the enemy. As soon as they make this commitment, oh, we're going to serve the Lord, the enemy comes, gathers around them, and they're attacked. Why did the Philistines attack? The Philistines attacked probably because they saw this spiritual fervor as a prelude to a holy war. That was their thinking. When the people gather, would gather together and have a spiritual celebration, it was often to rally the strength of their God to go out to battle. So the Philistines perceived, uh-oh, they're making a commitment to their God. Anytime now, they're going to attack us. So while Israel was unprepared, their arms were down, they didn't have their swords or shields, they were worshiping God, that's when they were attacked. How like this is to what happened a few weeks ago in Netanya when during Passover, families, children, mothers, fathers, grandparents were gathered together in a hotel dining room celebrating Pesach, the Passover, thanking God for the deliverance from Israel. And they were attacked by a homicide bomber, somebody who strapped a bomb and walked in and blew up and killed several people. And how like this is, what we just read, to October of 1973 on the holy day of the Jews, Yom Kippur, Israel was attacked by Syria from the north, Egypt from the south, in the most unprecedented and best organized attack of the Arab world against Israel when they were worshiping on their high holy day and communication was cut off, cars weren't running, there was no work done, and people were resting and they were worshiping. Why is this happening? There's a lot of reasons, but you should understand, as David said, there's a large majority in that part of the world who deny the right of Israel to exist. And look at women and children not as innocent. I don't know if you caught this, but a few weeks ago, right after that bombing in Netanya, Geraldo Rivera was outside, and he was saying what happened, that somebody walked in and killed innocent people. And he happened to catch out of the corner of his eye a man nodding his head. And he said, come here. Why are you nodding your head? He goes, oh, forget it. Never mind. He goes, no, come here. Why are you nodding your head when I said that innocent women and children were killed tonight? He said, because they're not innocent. He said, you're telling me the children aren't innocent? They're not innocent. He said, why? He said, because they're Jews. Because they're Jews, they're not innocent. Therefore, they're part of this conspiracy. Just because they are Jewish children and Jewish women, they are not innocent. And they see Israel as guilty. There is a complicated mess in the Middle East. I don't want to be one-sided. I want to pray for the Palestinians and Israel. I want to pray for peace in that nation. I pray for the peace of Jerusalem. The Bible says to do that. Let me say that the outcome of the war in Israel is vital to the rest of civilization in general. You know why I say that? Because if suicide bombing is allowed to work in Israel, what's next? If the suitable weapon to use as leverage against people is to kill yourself and kill others with them, then you also have a September 11th, and what's to keep a terrorist from strapping himself to a nuclear device next? Why do you think we're so scared about letting Saddam Hussein and others get nuclear devices? Let me just crystallize this for you in case you have any doubts in your mind. This is um, from the Washington Post, spoken by Ismail Haniyeh. He is a Palestinian leader, Hamas leader. He said that the Palestinians have found Israel's weak spot because the Jews love life more than other people and prefer not to die. So 
suicide bombing is ideal for dealing with them. Do you realize how sick that is? We've now found a weapon that we can use against people who value life. We'll kill them. We'll terrorize them. Golda Meir, the one-time prime minister of Israel, said, when some of these radical Hamas, Hezbollah, fundamentalists, when they love their children as much as they hate the Jews, this will be over. When they love their children as much as they hate the Jews, this will be over. You say, well, wait a minute. Don't be so one-sided. These people are doing this because it's an act of desperation. Well, if I read my history correctly, there have been a lot of oppressed people who in their desperation didn't strap bombs to themselves and kill themselves and other people. We oppressed the black man in this nation. They didn't kill themselves. Martin Luther King and other activists marched peacefully, which changed the conscience of the nation. So did Mahatma Gandhi. And if that kind of strategy, not a suicide bombing, was done in mass, you would see a massive international consciousness turned toward people. So I brought that up because of verse 7 and 8. Let's quickly finish this chapter. We're out of time. Samuel took a suckling lamb and offered it as a whole burnt offering to the Lord. And Samuel cried out to the Lord for Israel, and the Lord answered him. Now Samuel was offering the burnt offering. The Philistines drew near to battle against Israel, but the Lord thundered with a loud thunder upon the Philistines that day and so confused them that they were overcome before Israel. I don't know if you remember this, but Hannah in chapter 2 prayed and said, God will thunder against his enemies. She probably said that poetically. God did it literally. And the men of Israel went out of Mizpah and pursued the Philistines and drove them back as far as below Bethkar. And Samuel took a stone and set it between Mizpah and Shen and called its name Ebenezer, saying, Thus far the Lord has helped us. So here they are calling rocks by names. I don't know. It's just some interesting thing. Now, I'll tell you why they did it. Israel was fond of setting up memorials. So when they looked at a stone, a pillar, some monument, they go, oh, that's what happened when God did that for us. Remember the two tribes did that when they crossed the Jordan River? They set it up so they would always remember the event. They looked at it and called it Ebenezer, the stone of help. God has helped us. The idea is God has helped us this far. We're sure that he's going to help us from now on. It's a Philippians chapter 1, verse 6 kind of an idea, which tells us, being confident of this very thing, that he which has begun a good work in us will continue to perform it until the day of Christ. Your memory can inspire you. You can look back, and when you look back and see what God has done, then you look at your future. Your future is based on your past. Instead of worried, I don't know what God's going to do with me in the future. Well, what has he done with you up till now? Let's see, you're fed, you're clothed, God's been faithful. That's what he's going to do in your future. The Lord has helped us. And so the Philistines were subdued, and they did not come any more into the territory of Israel. And the hand of the Lord was against the Philistines all the days of Samuel. And the cities which the Philistines had taken from Israel were restored to Israel from Ekron to Gath. That was their border, eastern border. And Israel recovered its territory from the hand of the Philistines. Also there was peace between Israel and the Amorites. And Samuel judged Israel all the days of his life. He went from year to year on a circuit to Bethel, Gilgal, and Mizpah and judged Israel in all of those places. But he always returned to Ramah. That's his home. There he judged Israel, and there he built an altar to the Lord. Can I leave you with this? Israel's tragedy eventuated in Israel's victory. Now I want you to think of that and hear those words. Israel's tragedy. The Philistines attacking them, priests dying. The capture of the ark eventuated in their victory. It led Israel to spiritual revival. 
and it made it possible for God to bring them back to a place of peace and victory. And so, is it possible to arrive at victory apart from a battle? I don't think so. The very name victory implies you've won a battle. So when the trials, when the hardships, when the pain, when the battles come, when the enemy surrounds you, set up that stone. Look back and see how God has worked in your life and be sure that he's still at work in your life. And maybe for some of us tonight, we need to draw a circle around us and say, God, revive the inside of this circle. Revive my heart. Make me restless for you open to receive your word, willing to renounce that which is false and to embrace and obey that which is true. May God send us personally that kind of heart. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, figuratively we draw a circle around each of us and we pray that you'd revive us. Our eyes look to the Middle East, we look to Israel, we look to the Palestinians. And we think of all of the problems in the world, but we know, Lord, that within each of us is a sin nature. Even though you've given to us who believe in you a new nature, the flesh wars against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh. We are in that battle. It's very real. And we pray that we would be those that pant after you. Revive us, Lord. Cause us to truly lament after you to long with all longing to be right with you. And with that longing, Lord, to be all ears to hear what you are saying by your Holy Spirit through your word to us. If we've set up false gods, false idols, a distraction that keeps us away from wholly being committed to you, give us the heart to put those things away from us and the willingness to obey you only. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's all stand. 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 Name.